ways. There are so many of you here this morning. I'm very aware of the intensity and the demand of a first world city as dramatic as what that is. And to know that some of you have taken time off work, some of you have given up precious vacation or rest or breathing space. Uh, to be here is an incredible honor. And I cannot have enough kind of superlatives to express my gratitude. I really do appreciate it so very much. I really do hope that Meryl will be back with me um, with her study getting her master's and she's a therapist now. She, she had to do three things once she graduated. She had to write a law and ethics exam, which she's done. She has had to do 3,000 hours of supervised therapy, meaning she meets with the supervisor every week to process her clients. And then she writes a big final exam, and then we can set up a practice. And uh, I don't know if that's what will happen, but uh, she was not a happy camper when she said goodbye to the five of us, feeling a serious attack of FOMO, knowing that she was going to miss out on a number of things. Can I also just, and I'm sure you agree with me, just express my thanks to these four young people. You know, I met them in January. They had no clue who I was. It's not like they have history. Uh, in fact, Haley heard me preach for the first time yesterday. <laughs> I'm just scared to ask. So, and, uh, you know, there was just such a synergy, just a kind of a God connection between us. And I invited them to come and journey with Meryl and I for a year and uh, do whatever God wants us to do this time. And, and Rob just hijacked them to go to Sri Lanka with them in a few months' time. So the guys have signed up and they, they're going to go and have the Sri Lanka experience with the two wild men in the front here. And I daren't tell their mothers what is going to happen there. I'm just going to plead absolute ignorance. But you know, one of the greatest gifts, the two gifts that we can give those who are younger than us, and of course there are many more, but in the context of this conversation, the one is uh, faith. And uh, they just graduated from university, all four of them did in May. And um, I just said, why don't you join in with me and I'll take you to Dubai. But you're going to have to fake the tickets. And none of them had jobs. They all had just stepped out of college with college uh, um, loans to pay off. And I thought, I want to see. I just want to see, is there a kindling of faith? Is there an expectation that God can meet this? I know that some of the parents helped out and so on. But to give people the opportunity to trust and believe God so young is, I think, one of the great gifts we can give them. We can, we can choose a softer option. We can give them an easier way out. But, but I think gift, and, and the gift of faith, especially our kids too, because all of us should have a current faith adventure. All of us. There should be something we're believing God for. It could be healing. It could be a job. It could be a house. It could be for finance. It could be any of a number of things. But again, if time can stand still and we pass the mic up and down, um, then each one of us should say, actually, my faith project right now is this. Invariably, there's a financial faith piece to it. Invariably. Because I think God loves putting us to the test and the great many funny stories that we could tell about how God has come through for us. But I'm so proud of them uh, buying in. Um, I met with all of their parents, because you can imagine their parents that just come through a private Christian university and uh, they meet this stranger who says, why don't you come and give a year free? You know, and the folks are saying, who the hell is this guy? You know, 
that my kid is prepared to go and give a year without salary to go and serve. Unfortunately, most of the parents like that. And I pushed Marilyn first. I kind of said, for me, Marilyn, I'm just going to say something from the car, you know. And then, of course, when people meet Meryl, they like her, and then I come with the package. So I love them. I'm so proud of them. I'm so proud of you. Uh, Biblical Apostolicity is not a science. It's not a science. It's not something we can lay out like a theology justification by faith. We can present to you systematically, intentionally, measuredly. Biblical Apostolicity is far more of an unfolding adventure in which all of us tell our own stories. How God requires it, what God demands of us, what it looks like. And it all starts with a fundamental understanding of just who Jesus is. And, 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 and the way in which you have either encountered Christ, came to faith in Christ, or currently living in partnership with Christ, will tell me the extent to which you will buy into the book of Apostolicity. Because it costs you everything. As I quoted when I preached yesterday, um, to obey God means to disobey yourself. And uh, only Jesus is compelling. Will you disobey yourself? But the self is the master. Self wants to rule and reign. Self wants the things we like, the things we have great pleasure in. And so forgive me if I tell a number of stories during the two sessions and maybe a Q&A that have to do with me and my family. Only because it's not a science, it's an art. It's a story lived. It's, a, it's, an, it's an encounter told. It has to have high points and low points. God sent us to Los Angeles. I hated LA. I did not want to go to LA. I went to LA kicking and screaming. I know most people think, oh, that's not really true. It was 100% true. For eight years, I hated LA. Every time I came into land of LAX, uh, toward LAX, coming in from the desert, I would find my chest closing in. I would find my heart start palpating. I would cry out to God, please liberate me from the city. I don't want to live here. I don't want to be here. I'm in the wrong place. I'm in the wrong culture. I'm in the wrong country. God gave you one of those things you if you want to. And you know that that means welcome donor. Where the heck is that whale? Um, so there are high points and low points. There are times of great heroism and there are times of great weakness and vulnerability where you feel like your soul is imploding in loneliness and despair and discouragement. We can't easily tell you the cool stories, the fun stories, the adventure stories. But we also have to tell you, in all honesty, the stories of challenge, obstacle, and difficulty. But I want to come back to this point. It is imperative that you define who Jesus is in your heart. Otherwise, this is bad legalism. You feel guilty every day. You feel guilty that you're not giving enough. You're not sacrificing enough. You're not doing enough. It will be a shame-driven culture. But if Jesus is so incredibly compelling and captivating, I met Jesus when I was 18 years old, an Afrikaner from a conservative background, um, and uh, I told you a little bit yesterday, I, I lay in my bed in my parents' house at the end of my first year at Rhodes University, and I said, Jesus, I need to know. I get hit by a wine bottle in a fight. Uh, my eye was healing, being stitched up, and um, I said, Jesus, I need to know. I need to know. I'm, 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 I have no virtue for niceness. Niceness is not a, it's not a fruit of the spirit. It's not something that, that I find any value in. Um, for me, this Jesus that I said yes to had to be rugged and robust and radical and demand by everything, or it wasn't a savior worth worshiping. 
And that was the beginning of the journey. I then got involved with the Jesus People Movement. Again, we didn't know what it was called, but I just thought every born-again Christian was part of that. We lived in communal houses with Mike and I preached in the streets together in the 70s. We take a guitar, stand on the street corner, gather a crowd, preach for two minutes, get cussed at, shout at, some even listen, and then we would go back and feel how incredibly courageous we were. But you see, I needed a radical Jesus. I did not want a cultural Jesus, and that has governed my heart and my life. And so stepping into a biblical apostolicity was simply giving language to a heartfelt conviction. And uh, if your Jesus is just a cultural one, I, I want you to know what we will share with you today will be, oh, no, they ask too much. This is, this is too costly. You know, um, my Jesus is not really like that. My Jesus is middle class. He's white or uh, Sri Lankan or whatever your culture is. And so we craft a Jesus suited to the one we like. He's got to be like us. He's got to love who we love. He's got to vote the way we vote. He, you know, he, he's got to be exactly like us. The only problem is that Jesus is not worth living for, worth dying for. That Jesus is not worth, I remember the one time um, we were flying out, Meryl and I, we were living in Durban. Early days, our kids were small. And uh, Maxie was probably about four years old, our eldest, who now with her husband lead a church plant in Perth, Australia. And um, remember making the mistake of taking them to the airport. The parents were going to look after the kids. Maxie was probably about four or five, I'm guessing. And as we went to say goodbye, she looked together to each other. She's very tender. And uh, one little tear started rolling down her cheek as she turned to her grandma, to Meryl's mum, who was an absolute darling of a woman. And um, we, I, I knew I had to take Meryl's seat immediately, so I said goodbye, and I took her to her. And as we started boarding the plane, Meryl was just sitting weeping, because her little girl was weeping. And uh, it was a long time ago, obviously. And so the air just came to her, you okay, my dear? And Meryl just kind of blurred it all out. I was going to say, no, no, daughter, and you'll be gone for two or three weeks, or whatever it was. And so she said to Meryl, come. And she took Meryl into the cabin, and uh, Meryl was kind of the, the, the pilots were doing all their last-minute checks, and there's my wife in the cabin, sobbing, waving to the kids who had long left, you know, who were probably in the parking lot by now, saying goodbye to kids who can't see her or hear her, but somehow placating her own pain. But she had to say goodbye one more time to the kids that she loved so deeply. The extent to which Jesus is compelling will depend upon your ability to embrace biblical apostolicity. And I say that with no judgment. I say that with no sense of criticism or condemnation. But through Jesus, I fell in love with I, I was a fair cricket at the age of 17. I was playing the spring box and with um, child players. I don't know how good I would have been. But I remember when Jesus came into my life a year later, I remember taking all my ticket gear, which I just bought, and I gave it to my brother who was five years younger than I was, and I said, this is yours. My father couldn't understand why I would walk away from all of that. But Jesus was too compelling. He knew my sport was my identity, it was my idolatry, it was the thing that held me captive, and he demanded my complete devotion. For the longest time, my father couldn't understand fact, he resented the fact that who was this Jesus? Surely he wouldn't give you a gift and then ask you to give it up, was what he said to me repeatedly. The Jesus you have in your heart, the Jesus that you fall in love with, is the Jesus that will require this of you. Are you with me? 
And, um, you know, recently I, I walked into the bedroom probably about a week or ten days ago, and Meryl was in tears in the early morning, which is kind of when we normally have our devotions. And um, I knew Meryl had had this. I kind of rhythm as I take the tea in the morning because I wake up at an unearthly hour. And uh, then I make tea, uh, a smoothie, which is uh, almond milk, spinach, and peanut butter. I make him that. It's delicious. And I make Meryl a green beast with kale and spinach and arugula and celery and ginger and lemon. And it's a wrap market. I mean, it kind of your eyes pop out when you drink it. It's the way to start the day. And I walked in and she was in tears. I walked out of her and we rolled on about something with her. And one of our elders' wives, when we passed away back then, had called her with this reminder. And um, let me see if I can find it. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many of who are first will be last and the last first. This is an upside-down kingdom. This is a none of this makes sense. None of this makes sense. So this is not a time to put your clever hat on. This is the time to surrender your cleverness. Can I put in brackets my first mentor uh, somehow kind of brought Rob Rufus and I under his wing and said, I will teach you a thinking man's faith. Which when you're at college or university, you want that. You want to process your doubts. You want to wrestle with your uncertainties. You want to bring closure to the questions you have to ask. And he never had any disdain for our doubts, but always empowered us with a thinking process. And uh, but there is that time when our mind has to submit to our spirit and allow the living God to quicken that within us. And uh, that does not make sense. There isn't a single part of that verse that makes any sense to a Western-minded person driven by a sense of success, achievement, material well-being. None of that makes sense to us. All right? Are you with me? So, what is all this about? I want to take you through a vertebra, a biblical vertebra, around biblical apostolicity and how it all made sense to me. Um, if I can open my computer, that my iPad, that will be even more fun. I suppose for me, outside of this compelling Christ, it started one day in, uh, in Durban, and I felt the Spirit of God say to me, I was sitting in my garage and tried to marginally convert it into a study, and I felt the Spirit of God say to me, um, I want to teach you to read the Bible apostolically. Now bear in mind, for those of you who understand our culture, I was Dutch Reformed until I was about a teenager. Then we were Methodists because they didn't ask for your money. And then, um, well, that's the truth. That's why we became ardent Methodists. And, and then I, I, I met Jesus and joined the Invisible Church, Jesus People Movement. And um, I, in fact, just hold that thought for a moment. I've just seen you know, something I don't want to forget. You know what's interesting for me? I've been through probably five major moves of God. Um, the first was the Jesus People Movement. I mean, we all lived together, had long hair, t-shirt, jeans, that's how we lived, we loved life. It was this incredible thing. And I remember at one stage sharing a house with a guy who'd done time in prison for murder. Remember Big John? We knew there was Big John. Uh, a girl who'd been a prostitute. Um, a guy who had done drugs. I mean, there was just this, and now we were all in the house together. Humanly impossible, spiritually empowering. At the same time, the charismatic renewal. And uh, so, when I 
sanctified. I thought that everyone spoke in tongues, because that's what we did. Everyone, you had a worship with abandonment and, and singular um, enthusiasm. I anticipated everyone. That was what happened when you became a Christian. It was a huge surprise to me when others didn't quite do that. Uh, then we were part of what the historians, I think, called the Restoration Movement, which was the, the crazy, wild church planting of the 90s. It was true across the board. It was John Wimber. It was, who was the guy from Thailand? Uh, um, Dr. My granddaughter would say, you, you're an idiot. Um, not fantastic. Anyway, I think his name is just come up. But another one was this incredible Terry Burger, Gerald Coates, Barney Coons, just this incredible global move, which I think historians are calling the restoration movement. Uh, part of the civil rights thing, we marched against uh, apartheid. Uh, I certainly did with friends. Pastor against apartheid was my banner as we marched down West Street singing our songs, they sang songs of communism, songs of socialism, we sang in tongues out of fear for our lives. Um, and then of course it's one of blessing, badly called, badly demonstrated, one of the times we got fully and completely offended me. I didn't like one thing of the Toronto blessing, but I said, Jesus, if there's one aspect that is true about you in this, I want in. I was personally offended, culturally offended, offended as a man, but I, I just said, Jesus, I need to know, because I want to argue this afternoon, there is another move coming. I'm not a revivalist. I, I'm not putting all my hope on the next move of God, but I do believe God is busy. And I feel a little bit like the tsunami. You know when it sucks all the water back because it needs all the water to build up for that seemingly endless wave to come and create the impact that it does. I feel that happening as I travel around the world. I feel like there's a sucking back. There is this almost wide-eyed expectation. Is something else happening? Because a lot of what we're doing, I hear over and over again, is like sand in the mouth. It's like, really? Is this it? Is this the best? Is this all we've got? There's an eager sense of either disappointment, because this is all, or anticipation. Wow, what is coming? But can I just say this, and that's why I don't want people forget this. Every move of God, four things happens at least. The one is theology. God chooses to reveal something about himself that has been forgotten or neglected. So the charismatic renewal, the gifts of the Holy Spirit is neglected, um, and so on. I mean, there's the neo-Calvinists that show all those things in there. And, and, and when that theological piece comes, please understand, it will be a theological war. Because others who don't believe that or emphasize that will fight that. The second thing that happens is not just theology, but ecclesiology. God will choose to reveal, ecclesiology is the church. So God will choose to do things in the church that are different to the way they were done before. So again, Jesus in the movement, we were the first in South Africa to, to take out a warehouse. We were preached against. People were warned, don't go there. Who has church in a warehouse? No one meets. Now it's commonplace. The ecclesiology shifted. We shifted onto the streets. We played in bands. We played for concerts. It was a major ecclesiological shift. There's the question I ask you, when he comes again, how will he shift things around and will you be okay with it? Because invariably it'll have a twist, a turn and a spin that will bring an aspect of 
God and godliness in your very broken will be with you. I beat the drum. I hope this is making sense. I hope my heart comes across you. I beat a drum around dining room table Christianity. I think the church is overly dependent on the pulpit. The Catholics gave us the sacraments, the Eucharist. The Reformers gave us the pulpit. Jesus gave us the dining room table. Hardly ever did Jesus teach without food. Don't look. Even when the 4,000 left, the disciples said, let's disperse them. Ain't going to do this. He said, come on, bring me your picnic basket. That will be enough. And I think the dining room table is the millennial pulpit. It's the way the millennials respond to the gospel and to instructions around food, around the safety and sanctum of a dining room table, because most of them have not grown up with a safe dining room table. They've grown up in a scattered world, living around the iPad and the phone. I, I went to get some takeouts the other day, and I was just waiting for the food to come. Great new little Vietnamese place, right? Uh, Neo, I just found it. And um, while I was waiting, a young couple, millennials, I'm going to put them at 24, he was on his phone, she was on her phone, and they didn't talk to each other. When the food came, he sat with his phone, she sat with her phone, and they left, and I'm sure they had a great dinner, but they had it by themselves. The dining room table is the modern pulpit. It's the pulpit where, where, the, where the, the, the young can lament the pain and challenge of their adventure. They're not impressed with this pulpit, but they're desperate for that pulpit. I'm saying that maybe the next move of God will be more around the dining room table than around the pulpit, and it will offend us boomers. Because we've learned the power of this, and yet we know this doesn't disciple. What disciples is when you put your feet under my dining room table. That's discipleship. When you get into my car and get into my world and I yours, that's true biblical discipleship. But we cannot help ourselves but default to this. Is there anything wrong with us? No, it's just one small part of a bigger adventure. But we make this part the adventure. And so that's why so many people want the mic in hand, because the message we're communicating is this is where the action is. This is but a small part of the action. The greater part of the action is around the dining room table. It's taking a bunch of guys on a motorcycle, and, and ladies, whatever you do, forgive me, I, I, nothing springs to mind. Embarrassingly so. Oh, I, because I don't do the ladies' things, you know. Um, are you with me? There will be a piece of theology God will restore to us that will be offensive. We won't go for it. There will be an ecclesiological shift that none of us know, but it will look different and feel different, like the warehouses were for those who were used to church buildings. The same, like bands became for those who were used to organs. Please remember those of you who like me a little bright. I remember walking into the visible church for the first time. The band was playing. I've got a clear, vivid imprint on my mind. Brian was on guitar. Sid was on lead guitar. Abe was the drum. I was the bass guitarist. I remember that, that bass guitarists don't smile. I remember Abe taught me that. They just stand there. And they don't. That, that, that's what they do. And I remember feeling so culturally offended. How can you bring an electric guitar into a church building? Because I was Dutch Reformed and Methodist, and you didn't do that. And then something switched. And the Spirit of God came upon me. And my culture was offended, but my spirit was awakened. There's a theological shift. There's an ecclesiological shift. There's a missiological shift. God will once again send us into the dark places of the world. Once again, the church will be called into those spaces that are not popular, not common, 
and it's in the heart of the millennium. They want a justice-driven gospel. If it's not in our writing, if it's not in our psyche, there is a deep displeasure. Many of them want to be involved in social justice. Many of them want to see the gospel with dirty hands and dirty feet in the dirty places of our world. And I think there is a missiological piece there that includes church planting, for sure, establishing communities of love and life in dark and broken places, but also in, 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 in social justice, injustices, in, in whatever. And then fourthly, can I just say, in the next move of God always challenges our leadership models. You know what's been interesting to me? I've never heard a leader, including from our now, a teaching on leadership where the open point is meekness. Oh, Alpha Male, this is a white South African, we preach that well. You're going to be gutsy, you're going to be strong, you're going to be combative, you're going to fight, you're going to be a soldier. But I have never heard a leadership teaching on being meek, or turning the other cheek. I wonder which leadership component God will highlight as Jesus was meek. Keep silent in the face of your adversaries. Keep quiet when false accusations come your way. Remain humble in the face of a culture that is hugely driven by celebrityism. Can I just say this to you as well? And again, Rob, cancel out anything I'm saying. Please be absolutely true. We are way too enamored by numbers. Please understand that. I, I, I live in the church planting world. Meryl and I are planting. I'm working with 12 church plants right now for a year. The cohort. That's my world. And I cannot tell you the pressure they're under whether to answer the first question. The first question is, how many people have you got? It's the worst question to ask a church planter. It's like saying, you've just got married, how many kids have you got? You haven't got any. Well, what's wrong with you? Then we better have a talk. It's ridiculous. And, and the, the, the first question you ask a church planter is, how are you? Because they've set themselves up against the full onslaught of darkness. And the enemy knows that to strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. So why not strike them before the sheep? 80% of American church plants fail within three to four years. And all the way, the question is, how many people do you have? The second is, what building are you renting? What a ridiculous question. What a ridiculous question. As if, as if the kind of building determines whether that is going to be a successful thing or not. You've got a band. So they rent them, they hire them. And what's your kids' ministry like? The books tell you the first hire a church promise has is kids' ministry. Isn't that tragic? And I stoked I was to look across there last night, and there was Baptist's little one sleeping in the corner on the floor, on a concrete floor with a blanket. I wanted to take my four inches and say, Look, you see, that's our dream. Not one stays at home so the kids can have a good night. That's our dream. The kids grow up in the ambience of worship, in the spirit of community, doing life together on a global adventure. That's far more compelling than mommy stays at home so kids can have a good night's sleep. So, when he comes, and I prefer visitation to a Bible or Reformation or any one of the other words, when he comes, Please know he will offend us with our theology. He will stretch us with our ecclesiology. 
He will amaze us with our missiology, where He will send us. And fourthly, He will transition us in our leadership conversations. What does leadership look like in the 21st century? Some of the most influential young men that I'm working with right now are not alpha males. The A-type personalities, but not alpha males. They don't roar when they walk into a room. They're humble. They would prefer not even one of them who I'd love you to meet. Rob Jackson invited me to come out here so soon. The young man I met when he was 30 years old and he was leading a church of 6,000. Did you see a reaction? Don't press the old numbers. He walked away from 5,500 of them. And then I said, God's not called me to lead another church. A meek man. Gentleman. Not an alpha male. Walked away from five thousand, five and a half thousand people. I know I'm involved in the story. We started with a small group of people in downtown Portland, in the Pacific Northwest, which is the most unchurched part of America. The only problem is so damn gifted that they're almost a few thousand away. And he doesn't want a big church. But his gifting won't allow him to live in a space that his personality wants to live in. Okay. How's all, all that? Does that take you too much time? Does that stir you, stretch you, encourage you, enlarge you? So, 1980-something, I was sitting at home in Durban, South Africa, and um, I, I felt the Spirit of God say to me, Son, I want to teach you to read the Bible apostolically. And I said, Lord, what does that mean? And he said, I will teach you. And so I was sitting at my desk. I just bought some Ray-Bans in Singapore, so I was very fancy. Now, bear in mind, we were first church life. We were, so, so this, was, this was a costly little purchase for me, and I was very impressed with me. So I said, Lord, I don't know what that means, but, 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 but I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put on my Ray-Bans, and uh, I said, Lord, I'm going to take these off. This is the way I've read the Bible. I've read the Bible as a son of God, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, and so on. As an Afrikaner, as a male, all the I've read, but, but I know there's another way I've got to learn to read the Bible. So I put my reading glasses on, which I'm sure was like a 1.25 or something, and I put them on and I said, Will you teach me? And I went to Genesis and started reading it from the beginning. And what delighted and amazed me was this progressive reading as I went through with this vertebra throughout the scriptures of the same core from the beginning to the end. And I'm going to quickly run through it with you, and then I think what we break or might will take over or whatever. Are you with me? You got your Bibles ready? We're going to just skip through some verses. Firstly, was Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. And it was as if I was struck by a two by four. On my forehead, in the beginning, God created. What an amazing thought that God chooses to introduce himself as an artist an architect, a designer. So often we jump to God as supreme, which he is, that God is almighty, which he is, God is immutable, which means he doesn't change, which is also true. But God doesn't introduce himself as such. God introduces himself as an artist. And I, and, and, and I, I, I labored with that, I kind of marinated in that. What are the implications? Means God is continuously creating. Francis Schaeffer, one of the initial influencing philosophers that shaped my mind, was that we're living in the eighth day of creation. That means that if we always do the same things in the same way, 
We're not reflecting the God who's the ever-breaking artist. That's why I find, and it's just me, remember I said a lot of this is just a personal story, I find no virtue in ritual or religion that simply repeats the same things the same way. We'll sing three and a half songs, then we'll have announcements, then we'll preach, then we'll have a response time and we call that church. And I'm saying, God, really? Is that it? You're the artist. You can do it differently every time. There are 12, I looked, studied this, there were about 12 different ways when the church got together, what happened there? And sometimes they just ate. Sometimes they just prayed. Sometimes they just talked. And we have slipped into the rhythm of ritual repetition. We just do the same thing over week after week after week as if that's what God offers. No, he's the artist. He is creating, he is sculpting, he is designing, he's having the time of his life. He said, God, we got you. We'll have three songs, 13 minutes of announcements. The announcements always run as a message these days. And, then, and no one remembers the announcements, of course, and they're normally badly given because they should reflect the narrative of the church, not information about the church. We don't remember the information, we remember the story. And then we have the response time at the end. Are you with me? Now, that has a sublime impact upon me. I hope a little bit of that is communicated. Turn over the page, please, if you're following or slip in with your, with your that little box, uh, chapter. One, continue the 20, and God blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful, increase, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And again, I was so intrigued by this notion. And now I have a family of hermeneutic. You know what the hermeneutic is? It's the glasses or the lenses you wish you use through which you interpret the Bible. We all have them. Even if you don't know them, even if you didn't go to Bible college, you have a hermeneutic. In other words, the way you read the Bible, and we all think the way we read it is true, there are many hermeneutics there. There isn't one singular one. And that's why this power of team, when we bring our hermeneutics together, and we read the scriptures together, and we find the commentary together. If I'm the sole proprietor of hermeneutics, I'm the sole one who decides how we read the Bible, we're in trouble. Because I'm way too wretched. I'm way too weak. I'm way too broken to let my hermeneutic dominate. But my hermeneutic is family. In other words, when I read the Bible, I read family. So even as a church leader, when I want to find the answer to an issue, I go back to family, biblical family. So what is the answer? What does it look like if I default back to the text? And this was easy for me. Okay. Increase, multiply, fill the earth. Let's go back to family. What is family? Chris meets Meryl. Meryl's 15. Chris is 18. Chris finds her very sexy and cute. He'll learn to love her later. The future sexy was a good start. That was a cool place to begin. We fall in love. We get married. Meryl's 18. I'm 22. I'm off to the army for two years. And Meryl, being the wonderful 18-year-old bride that she is, goes off to Oaksburg with me as I attend officer school. What is the obvious thing we do after we get married and she finishes her degree and we plant the church so to have babies. Increase, multiply. So I get that. You see, most churches only have an increase revelation. We want to grow. Bring your friends. We'll have friends Sunday. Bring the unsaved. We're going to have this full series on questions the unbeliever asks. The skeptics are answered. We love them, which is good and necessary because we want to increase, but that's one third of the three parts call to a world that hadn't sinned yet. Increase, 
multiplied, had kids, their kids get married, fill the earth. My vivid imagination is God putting his arm over Eve on the one side, Adam on the other, and he says, he says, look out there, what do you see? Are endless blue mountains, wave upon wave of beauty. I want you to have kids. And I want your kids to get married and have kids. And I want you to fill this earth with my glory and my presence and my wonder. I want you to do and are every day as this wave of wave of beauty and creation delights you and surprises you. Any questions? So when I translated that into our little church called Glenwood, I realized this. My job is to find the call of God in each person, call it out, train it, challenge it, channel and challenge it, because my job is to empty the church. So I would get up and I still say, I want to empty this church every five years. Because you know, my kids still live at home. That's is 31, Dana's 29, she is 18. By the time they're 40, if you say, if I say to you, oh, we're really old, you know, they're home. Oh, really? Well, oh, they sleep till 11, you know. You go home and say to them, this is there's something wrong with that you don't house. In church, we applaud that. Of more people who do nothing. Oh, this is a cool church. Over 2,000 people who do nothing. It's an incredible church. We need to send our people there to find out how to get a lot of kids to stay at home and do nothing, and we call that an incredible family. I think there's some big surprises, honestly, when we get to heaven one day, and some of the superstars that media have made popular are going to find the match test. Because God throws a match test. God says, you thought you had a church of 10,000, but you had a church of 200, because 200 people, the disciples grew in maturity and embraced the bigger, broader calling. The real size of the church is 200, not 2,000. Are you with me? Increase. Multiply. Fill the earth. Fill the earth with the seed of your family. Do we miss Mark and Ash every single day? They're in Perth. Our four grandkids are there. They start with Meryl or FaceTime with Meryl almost every day. Hi, Omar. They will say as Nash picks up the phone. Hey, how you like this? Oh, we just had our little ballet exam. And we just ran and, and, and Sala, who's the, the third child, a little quieter. And she generally got totally distracted at athletics, never achieved anything. Right? And somewhere, someone told her that if you put your game face on, you will do better. And she said, Amma, I put my game face on. And she said, and the girl said, Sally, what is it in the She came second. She said, well, I have my, my game face on, Amma. Now, do you think that's cool? Do you, do you think that's the way we want it to be? Heck no, we want Nass and Mark to live there. We want David and Stu to live there. We want T to live across the road a bit further away. That's how we want it to be. But you see, that's not the privilege. Pre-sin, God gave us the mandate to increase, to multiply, and to fill the earth. Go with me to chapter 9, please. I'm still in my study. I'm still reading. I'm still mesmerized by what I'm reading. The flood comes and fills the earth. Noah and his family are the last standing. And guess what? What is God's instruction? And you, verse 7 of chapter 9, be fruitful. Multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in the PSV What did God say to Noah? 
Adam had it before the fall. Noah had it after the flood. Exactly the same. Increase, multiply, fill the earth. We haven't planted our little church yet. We're a community gathering. But one of the first conversations I'm having with this non-existent pre-church church is, who is our first church plant? I don't think God's going to be impressed. Well, we'll be 500 one day. Then we will plant. Really? Like saying, well, we'll get married and we'll buy that 3,000 foot house, square foot house with three car garage, and when we have all of that, then we'll have kids. Why? There are 120 in the upper room. That was enough for God to work with. God says it to Noah. What time is that? Finish, Rob. Genesis 17, please. Abram was 99 years old and God appeared to him. Isn't it cool God gives an old guy a mission and a dream? Isn't it cool that with a church planting or going into a multiplying story is not for the young? I'm 59, I turned 16. It's probably the scariest birthday of my whole life. 60 sounds old. 50 still sounds cool because you say things like, well, 50s are the new 40s. You know, it sounds cool. But there's no, no one says 60s are the new 50. No one says that. It's like, that's a lot of numbers right there. 60 is a lot of zeros. That's, that's a big, big number. Um, but, but, but I've got another 15 years in me. I've got at least one more church plant in me. We'll do this one or maybe one more. We'll see. We'll see if the legs are still there for one more. Because when this scriptural soul, when Jesus, the compelling Savior, the wondrous Redeemer, conquering King, invests your heart and saves you from your own pitiful life, your own pitiful life of self-absorption, and he says, come and follow me. Man, age is really secondary to an adventure, a global gospel adventure. And God says this, so let's run down, I will make a covenant between you and me, and will multiply you greatly. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you will become the father of a multitude of nations. Galatians says, He is the father of our faith. We will do as He did. No longer shall so your name be Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. And I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. It wasn't just Israel, it was a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, etc., etc., etc. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I could, if time allowed, to go to Genesis 28, and it says the same to Isaac. Genesis 35 to Jacob. Genesis 48, exactly the same. What's my point here? There is an overriding vertical truth throughout the text in which God puts this increase, multiply, fill the earth piece inside of us. It is compelling, it is captivating, it's deeply satisfying. It's also incredibly lonely, incredibly hard, incredibly demanding. The alternative is too scary for me. Just to be honest, when I think, and it's been incredibly lonely, I remember when I first arrived in LA driving the freeway, the enemy would come to me and say, What are you doing here? No one wants you here. They'd say to my kids, What are you doing here? We send missionaries to Africa. We don't need you. And I drive those freeways weeping, saying, God, this is too hard. It's too hard on my family. When we encountered the demonic world, the Los Angeles demonic world for the first time, and my kids were sleeping, Dana would see dark forms in, our, in, in her room at night. 
Now we have life, and we have been more prophetic in city cities than I am. So let's just go and face the demons in Africa. We know those. These American demons are far more scary. Far more scary. Because they suffer. Satan comes like an angel dressed in white. You think America is the source of all godliness. It is havoc. It is creating global havoc with its demonic materialism and overwhelming individualism. It's, it's culturalizing it's an imperialistic power driven by a television system. Please know that the American armed forces, of whom I am a fan, is not the true agent of concern globally for television. It's imperializing the world with American values that are not biblical. Alright, Matthew 28, how are we doing everyone? I know you're saying, Chris, tell us what you really think. I, I know you wanted me to be stronger and clearer, a bit more honest. Alright, Matthew 28, I'll just go through a handful of texts and I'll be finished in six minutes not. Matthew 28, verse 18. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when he, they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. I love that, love that, love that. There were eleven on the mountain, and some doubted. They saw him killed. They saw him risen. They saw his hands and his feet on the side, and they still doubted, and it was okay. Please know this, friends. Doubt. Please don't adopt that Pentecostalism where you have to live a fake you. You never doubt you're always blessed. No one is always blessed. I don't care who you are. You're not always blessed. At some point in time, you are grumpy, angry, frustrated, disappointed. God has left you down somewhere along the line. And if we don't create an honest community, we create a fake community where we have to pretend all the time. And the ones least impressed are our kids. I don't want to go to that church. If you go to that church, I get my other mom. I get my other dad. The one that lifts their hands, oh, God, it's a bit, oh, blessed, comes on screenshots, disgusting behavior, insensitive, unwise, never repent, and never apology, and never break bread at home. But it's true. Come, kids, let's have communion together in the good church. Forgive my Americanism. I'm not doing that. Some doubt. If you're in space and you're around me, Doubt to me is the beginning of a journey to faith. Doubt is a gift. Doubt is how we discover faith. Hardly anything of value you believe in started with you believing. It started with doubt. Really? Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Really? Oh, it's the beginning of a journey of faith. But if you can't doubt, I don't know how much faith will arrive at fully, weightedly, and completely. Um, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16. I'm sorry I'm rushing out. But these things are dear to me. Rock, can you give me something else to talk about? The Beatitude 11, chapter 16, verse 14, uh, as they were reclining at the table, there it is. He rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. He didn't rebuke them for their doubting. Because they had not believed in sword and the Lord. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs shall accompany those who believe. 
will go in my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents, serpents with their hands. It's not when you're from Louisiana and then you pick up snakes. It's when you're in the forefront of global gospel adventures. Luke chapter, what is it, right at the end. You see the overwhelming threat. When I meet with these millennials, they want an adventure. They don't want the full set. No, son. Well, my son's been to Christian schools, and they have too many chapels. Uh, I wish these jolly uh, head teachers or whatever they call them will realize, stop giving the kids chapels. Most times they're not helpful. He travels with me, goes with me to big churches of thousands, to small churches of pre-launch, 10 people in the line. And he will say to me, look at he's 18 and he goes to concerts in LA where they mosh, you know, they're all kind of going in bulk and they all kind of squeeze together, they move, and they can't actually move because everyone's driving me nuts, it's kind of claustrophobic. And he says, you know what, Dad, I go to concerts. There's smoke machines and there's sound system. I don't need that. That doesn't impress me. I don't have to go to church to have that. This is what I'm looking for is authenticity. I want to look around the room and see people authentically around with Jesus. He said, I'd rather sit in the lounge with 10 people who are authentic about their faith than go into big rooms where they're trying to imitate what I go to LA to see. I'll pay 100 bucks, I'll go to a concert, I'll come home. But I want an authentic faith that I can encounter with Jesus in an authentic way with real, honest, true people. So thank you, boy. Luke says what? What does Luke say? Luke says something like this. 24. Then he opened their minds and understood the scriptures and, and, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ shall suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you, have, you are witnesses to these things. Stay in the city until you are clothed on high. John. John, 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 John. What, what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to communicate to you the overriding apostolic virtue. The apostolos, the sent ones, those who go, those who... And there's two applications of that in the Greek. The one is a military application with an apostolos, and a, a, a navy ship is sent out on assignment that comes back to shore. The other is a messenger who goes and may or may not return. It is a calculating, passionate going assignment. I think our gospel burns in us most passionately when we have a going assignment. All right, where am I here? Uh, 20, 2020, John 20. Peace be with you, verse 21 says. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. Acts 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I'll give you one more scripture, and it's done. Uh, 8, please. Acts 8. Isn't it amazing? Watch how God does it when we go. And Saul approved of his execution, that's Stephen's death. And there rose that day a great persecution against the church. Where were they? Where were they? In Jerusalem. What did Jesus say to them? Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost. They don't. They stay. 
It's becoming cool and sexy to do church in Jerusalem. No one wants to go. So God says, well, if you won't go, I will encourage you. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Crazy, the ones who are called, the sent ones, stay. Everyone else goes. Where did Jesus say they must go? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the othermost. What happens in Acts 8? They go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria. What about the othermost? I'm glad you asked that question. What a way to end the session. Verse 28. The angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. God is committed to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the othermost. You know what I love about the story of our land? Many things. One, God is true to his word. In one chapter, the church moved from Jerusalem to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the othermost. There is the uttermost. It's a unit. They say it could have taken him six months to go from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he was not allowed to go into even the, the uh, kind of outer court because he was Ethiopian and he was a unit. Because he was a unit, he was in the same way you could not bring a, a, a trailed nugget, um, often we call it, uh, a stained offering. Blemish, thanks, Michael, you know, to. You know, you're like a dunk. And here's a man who's taken six months in Oxford to go to Jerusalem and he has to watch the worship from the outside. He has to stand on the outside. And I wonder who that is in our modern church. It's probably the transgender person. And we said very clearly, you're not welcome here because you don't know what to do with you. Do we call you him or her? Are you a man with boobs or a woman with a penis? So please don't come. Please stand on the outside and look in because you're not welcome here. That's the best parallel I have for what this Ethiopian unit was for the Jews at the time. And God says, You're just the person I need. He says, Philip, leave this revival. Leave this. Everything's happening. This is the most successful church in history, in Samaria. There's signs and wonders and miracles and everyone's writing articles about it and you go there, you go take your five leaders and go to Samaria and encounter something God says, no, 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 this is an upside-down kingdom. The most important thing is not the revival that everyone spoke about. It's an Ethiopian unit. There I put in brackets a transgender person who's desperate for faith but cannot find it everywhere. I will send someone to you because you are not welcome amongst my people of faith. You may say to me, Chris, that's a poor interpretation of the text. I'm happy to be with you. But I do wonder, if we are going to be a people who embrace biblical apostolicity and its beauty, its wit, and its scary, overwhelming impact, are we open to translate this gospel to those that Jesus sends to us? This is not for the elite. This is not for the spiritual SAS or Delta Force or Rickies, or um, Seals. This is for every man and woman. It's a worldview. It's the way we read the scriptures. It's the way we do life. It's the way we do our own lives, the way we do our marriages, the way we raise our kids, the way we run our businesses. It is a revolution. 
is a revolution. But the revolution means the people who cannot even come into our worship are the ones that get sent to. God sends people to those people. And that's why I love it. If Jesus is compelling, this is a wide life worth living. If Jesus is not, this is too demanding. God bless you. Close your eyes for a moment.